good to see everybody this morning. It is always so great to be back here. It's so great to be with you. This is one of my favorite places in the whole world is to be with you and to see your faces and to spend time with you. And Ashley and Lucy will be here today as well. And, um, and so we're, we're really glad to be here. I also want to say thank you to you. Um, we have launched a church in Nashville, Tennessee on the east side of town uh, called Sacrament Church. And we've been going for a little over a year now and connecting with people there. And uh, there have been some pretty just amazing things that have happened there. And I just want to say thank you because this community has a significant footprint in that community. And many of you have supported us, have prayed for us, have encouraged us, and I can't tell you what that means. Uh, this is a church that right now is mostly made up of people who are pretty new to faith. They have very little, if, uh, if any, church background. And I think that's pretty awesome as they have stepped into the rhythms of faith, the rhythms of grace kind of for the first time. And we're, we're leading uh, through the church calendar and we're walking through the basics of who we are as a people of God. And so it's been an awesome thing. So I want to say thank you so much for that. Uh, this morning, I want to invite you, if you have your Bibles, to turn to the book of First Peter. First Peter is where we're going to go today. And I think this uh, book is, is really interesting. I've been going through this book during Lent, and I think this is a great book to look at. It's a letter. Um, and just to give you a basic idea of what's going on in First Peter, this book was probably written in about the 60s AD. So we're talking just a few decades after Jesus died and rose again. And it was written by a guy named Peter, who was the most, uh, he was one of Jesus's closest disciples, and he was probably the most significant figure in the early church. In fact, he was so important as a leader in the early church that, you know, we talk a lot about the Apostle Paul, who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. He incredibly influential in our faith. Um, but the Apostle Paul was, you know, really driven in a vision from God or a, a, a passion from God to reach the Gentiles, to reach outsiders who were, uh, God was moving among them and invite them into the Christian story. But it wasn't until Peter received a vision it wasn't until Peter recognized the importance of these Gentiles, these outsiders being brought into the faith, that really it began to gain traction. So we can't really underestimate the value and the significance that Peter played in the early church. And he's writing this letter to a church in exile. This church is a minority people. They're finding it difficult, and they're asking the question, what does it mean to live as a Christian, to live as a disciple or a follower of Jesus in this culture where it seems like everything else is bent against that way, where everything else is different? So throughout this letter, what Peter does is he reminds this first church, this early church, of who they are. He reminds them of who the church is called to be and how they're called to be a different kind of people, to live in a different kind of way, even in a world that seems foreign to them, even in a world that seems like the wilderness to them. So I want to start in 1 Peter 2, starting with verse 4. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. 
Stones, rocks can be awesome things, great things. Uh, They also can be really, really annoying. Um, One of the things that has been said is there's places around the world, like in Ireland, where you'll see on the countryside that there are many, many gardens. And around these gardens, there are stone fences, okay? There are stone fences that surround these gardens. And one of the things that's said in Ireland is that the reason why all of those fences are made of stone is they would start gardening, and they'd have to figure out something to do with the rocks because there's so many rocks there. So they build these fences made of stone. Sometimes rocks can seem to get in the way, right, especially when you're gardening. I have an adversarial relationship with rocks, that happens every Sunday morning at 7.30 a.m. At our church, Sacrament Church, we uh, meet at an elementary school. We set up and we tear down every week. So we have a team that gets there at 7. Our service starts at 10, and we put everything up, and, and then after service, we tear everything down. And the thing that I like to do is I like to go out and put the signs out front so people know that we're there. So I go out there and we put out a bunch of different signs of a bunch of shapes and sizes and everything. And, and one of the signs that we put up looks like this. There's actually two of these. There's kind of one on either side. And so I go out and there's a base to these signs and you put it in the ground and I hammer it with a mallet. I go on one side first and hammer it with a mallet and it gets in there. And then I put the sign on. It stands really, really tall. And then I go to the other side. And there's something about that other side, that, that right side of, of, our, uh, of the elementary school, that I stick the base in the ground, and it goes in about six inches, and then it hits solid middle Tennessee rock, and I can't get around it. And I, I try to get in between the rock, and I try to lean it up against the sidewalk so it works, and sometimes if I can find a solution to it, then, then I'm kind of nervous that it's going to stand up for a little bit, and then it's going to fall over into traffic. And so I'm kind of in the lobby and I'm looking outside and just making sure that it's going to stay up for a while. But it always gets in the way and it's frustrating. So sometimes rocks get in the way. Now, sometimes they also are awesome. They're wonderful. If you build on a foundation of stone or of rock, then it can last for a long time. We have remnants and we have ruins of buildings that were made of stone many, many generations ago. And they have stood the test of time. Peter wants us to understand something about rock, something about stone. The word stone actually occurs six times in this passage, and then the word rock is thrown in once for good measure. Uh, There's something about stone that Peter wants us to understand, and it's because stone was so important to the Jewish community. For the Jewish people, there was one place in the world, there was one place in all of the world that was more important than any other place, and that place was the temple at Jerusalem. In fact, it was so important to the Jewish people, it was so significant that they believed that the closer that you were to the temple, the closer that you were to God. The farther away that you were from the temple, the farther away that you were to God. So life was all about getting to that temple, getting to that place where heaven and earth meet, that place where God lived. This was also important because they lived in a world where most nations worshipped pagan deities who were distant, who were far away. They were flighty, so they would come down and engage with humanity for a while, but then they'd get frustrated, and they would either just tolerate them or they would run away from them and keep their distance. And in a world of all these pagan deities who were flighty and who were far away, the temple says our God is close to us. He lives near to us. He has a house in our neighborhood. It's right here. But if you were a Jewish person in the first century, 
You also believed that the temple was not all that it should be. You held on to a hope, a hope that one day God would fully return to Zion, to Jerusalem. He would live in his temple and he would actually rebuild his temple. That was part of the world being made right. This future temple that you longed for would be built, you would say, on a rock. There would be a rock that would be built on. So if you find the right rock, if you find the right stone, you could be on your way to building this new temple, God's new temple. Also, the word for stone is really interesting. It's similar in Hebrew to another word, the word for sun. It's kind of like in English, those two words are kind of similar, right? Stone and sun, they're just a couple letters away. Well, it's similar in Hebrew. The the word for sun is the word ben. The word for stone is the word eben. Ben, Eben, Ben, Eben, super similar. So God had promised King David, the greatest king in Israel's history, that his son or his ancestor would build a temple in Jerusalem and that somehow this son of David would also be the son of God himself. The prophecies of the Old Testament show that this Ben or this son of God would build on the proper Eben, would build on the right stone, the proper stone. This Ben would build on an Eben. In fact, there were so many people at the time of Jesus who started to actually conflate these two words, Ben and Eben. And when they would talk about the temple, they would kind of use them interchangeably, Ben and Eben. This cornerstone that they hoped for was no longer seen as a physical stone, but as a person who the temple would be built on. This Eben was a Ben, right? So Peter talks about this stone, this living stone. This stone is actually a person. Come to him, believe in him, put your faith in him, Peter says. This new temple is being built on a rock, but this rock is a son, God's son, the son of David, Jesus. And Peter says he is a living stone. Now, since we've moved to Nashville, I've had to learn how to do more building things. Let me explain what I mean by that. Um, So my dad is really, really good at at building things, construction projects, reconstruction kind of stuff. He actually put himself through grad school, um, building and remodeling houses as a contractor. Many of you didn't know that about him. Um, But he has these just amazing skills and this knack for that. I got zero of that. I got none of that. And it's not his fault. I just never, just couldn't really connect with it. Um, and so what would always happen is when we lived here and had a house here in Oklahoma, um, you know, something would break in our house or we had to put something together. And there were always a few people who were kind of a phone call away, right? Uh, some people who I could ask, could you come help me with this? You know, and they would come and pretty much build it for me. Um, <laughs> and that, that's kind of all that happened, and we kind of got spoiled. And then we moved to Nashville. You don't know anybody there, and we kind of have to learn really fast how to put things together. Now, I'm not talking about complicated things, okay? I'm, I'm talking about pretty, pretty simple kinds of things. For example, we sold all our furniture before we left, and, and we bought all new furniture. We live in a really, really small apartment, and, uh, but it was all kind of brand new. So what we decided to do is buy all new furniture from Ikea, right? So we bought this furniture and we loved Ikea because it's not very expensive and it's it's all kind of modern so it kind of fit with the apartment there and and it's all small so our small place, you know, it'd be great. They deliver to your door. There's just one catch. There is some assembly required, okay? (laughs) 
So we open up the box and we start to kind of put this stuff together. And if you know Ikea, they give you these little bitty wrenches that you kind of use and going in there and putting all this together. And I'm trying to follow the instructions. And in addition to that, there's also like, like um, with Lucy, when you're a dad, when you start to be a dad, you kind of learn to, that you have to put things together. She gets these toys or she gets these things and we have to put learn to put stuff together. And I can't tell you how many times I'd be putting together something from Ikea or something from Lucy and for Lucy. And it just seems, there's a piece that just seems weird. Just seems like it's not going to fit. And my first thought is, okay, maybe I got the wrong piece here. They threw in an extra piece. You know, this isn't going to work. This doesn't make sense. Maybe I got something from another set accidentally. And so it doesn't fit. So I'll just kind of set this aside and not worry about this. So the project seems to be going along fine to the point where you think the couch can actually stand on its own. I look like this is something I can sit on, right? Or I was building something for Lucy recently and it was a toy kitchen that she got for Christmas. And, And I put it all together and it gets to the point where she starts playing with it. She starts getting close to it, and she kind of turns on the little sink handles and, you know, the faucet and all that kind of stuff. And I'm like, okay, she's getting ready to play with this. This is pretty much done. But then I see that the part that's the oven, it, it, it's, it's, it's kind of just slamming. The door's kind of slamming back and forth. And Lucy would go up to it and just whap, whap, whap. And it's just not closing. In fact, it actually looks pretty dangerous. But there's this one piece that I had cast aside And it's a piece that kind of catches it that actually makes it like a toy oven and not just a door that swings back and forth that is critically important to the project. I had to find that piece, to identify that piece, and to insert it correctly and find out where I went wrong. This is actually the kind of story that Peter recalls here. Now, I don't want to... I don't want to bore you today with too many like exegetical details of this passage, but there is some debate over what is a cornerstone? Like, what is that actually? We typically think of a cornerstone, kind of the foundation of a building, which is an appropriate way to think about that, the first stone that's laid. But Peter uses these stones in three kind of different ways here that look a little bit strange, and there's some um, contradictory thoughts and commentaries about what exactly he's talking about with the cornerstone. But the story that he recounts in chapter 7 is actually from the Psalms. And this idea is that there are builders and they're putting together a structure. And there's one stone that doesn't seem to fit in that structure. So they cast it aside. But then they get to the very top of the structure. They get to the very top, to the kind of the height of everything, right at the corner. And they need a stone that's just this exact shape. And the stone that they need that's that exact shape, they realize is the one that they had cast aside before. Jesus is that stone that the builders rejected, but he's actually the most important and exalted of all the stones. He is central, he's important, he's significant to the construction project. 2 Peter uh, 2.7 says, Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. Not only was Jesus rejected, he was rejected by his own people. Jesus was the fulfillment and is the fulfillment of the story of Israel, but Israel didn't recognize that. 
And the reason was because they had conformed themselves to specific expectations about how God would restore Israel. And Jesus didn't seem to fit. This peace didn't seem to make sense. So over time, rather than being a sign that God lived among his people, the Jewish leaders turned this temple into a symbol of nationalistic pride, a way of determining who was in and who was out. There was one particular political sect called the Pharisees, and they created all kinds of rules that would separate people who were in from people who were out. So one of the things that they said was pretty straightforward. It was, if you were a Jewish person, you were in. If you were a Gentile, a non-Jewish person, you were out. Then the rules started to become more complex. So it was, if you are whole in your body, if you're healthy, if you're not sick, if you're not deformed in any way, you are part of the in-group. If you're not, if you have something broken about your body, then you are out. And then the rules just got downright ridiculous and crazy. It got to the point where if you wash your hands with the right kind of vessel, the right kind of pitcher, then you're in. And if you don't, then you're out. So this thing, this temple that was supposed to be a place, a sign that God lives among his people, he is close to us, actually began to have the opposite effect. It actually began to separate insiders from outsiders. But God's desire was never to stay in a temple built with human hands, confined to one particular space. God's desire was never to create a system of us versus them. God's desire has always been to live among all people and to flood the earth with his glory and with his presence. So this temple that was a sign of God's closeness to all people became a source of separation. When Jesus stepped into our world, this close to us God became even closer. No longer did God simply own a house in the neighborhood, but he actually took on and came into the human experience. People ask us um, when we live in Nashville now if we see stars quite a bit. And, and we do. We see stars pretty regularly, actually. And uh, in Nashville, it's kind of cool, unlike a lot of other uh, cities that have movie stars and, you know, music stars and all that kind of stuff. Um, there's kind of an un, unspoken rule that you actually don't really talk to them. You don't really come close to them. So these stars kind of go about their, their days and their lives, and people aren't surrounding them. There's not paparazzi, which is really, really cool. Um, but one thing that there is a distinction about is there are people who actually live in Nashville, like, you know, rock stars who actually live in Nashville. You see them regularly. And those who own a house in Nashville. That's a distinction. Um, so those who are on this TV show that I've never seen yet called Nashville, they actually live there because they film there. And then there are those who don't. They're only there for a period of time and they come in and out or they record or whatever. The distinction here is that when God stepped into our world in the form of Jesus, that he no longer is just a God who owns a house in the neighborhood, but he is the God who has come close and has become personal to us. He came as close as a God could possibly get to being personal in that he became a person. That's pretty close. He became one person to reach all people, regardless of their ethnicity, behavior, or background. But the Jewish leaders still didn't see it. Peter says that this stone who was rejected is now seen as the most important piece of the whole puzzle. 
Now, I believe that the Christian faith is beautiful. It's compelling. The Christian story is an incredibly compelling story, but we always have to remember that it also has an edge to it. It's not tame. It's not cute. And the season of Lent implores us to remember that Christianity is difficult. It's a hard way. It's not for the faint of heart because, and the reason why it's hard is because it doesn't seem to fit all the time. It doesn't seem to fit with the world around us. In fact, it challenges all the other narratives of our world. I think about the story of the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, C.S. Lewis. Uh, how many of you have either read the book or seen the movie, uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? Okay, a bunch of us. Uh, and I remember this story, and you're going to have to forgive me, but I have the 1980s BBC movie in my head when I think of this story, okay, because that was my childhood. And, and the four children have just entered Narnia, and they take refuge in the home of Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, which in the 1980s BBC version, they had really thick Scottish accents, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver did. So they go into their house, and Mr. and Mrs. Beaver began to tell the children about Aslan, who's the lion character. He's kind of the Messiah character in this, in this story of the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. And, and they begin to talk about him, and whenever they talk about Aslan, they speak in hushed tones. So they say, Aslan is on the move. Everything gets really quiet. God is moving in our midst. He is coming close to us. He's at work in the world. And, and little Lucy, the youngest of the four children, she has a great name, by the way, the youngest of the four children, she asks, because Aslan is a lion. And she says, is he safe? Is he safe? Mr. and Mrs. Beaver start laughing really, really loud. They had whispered up, up to this point, and they start laughing really, really loud, safe, safe. And they say, of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's good. The Christian story is difficult. It's not safe. It's challenging, but it is the better way forward. It is the better way of being human in the world. Now, we still live in a world, and I know a lot of you will debate me on this, but, but we still live in a world where it's popular or at least neutral to carry the badge Christian. Those who self-identify as Christian are still in the majority in our world. It's not, um, we're not kind of an oppressed minority in that way. In, this same, in, in that way, our situation is actually a lot different than that of Peter's audience. They were an oppressed minority at this time in a small corner of the empire. We're not that way. It's actually easy for us to carry the label of Christian, that we're a follower of Jesus, that we go to church without much persecution. It's much harder, I want to suggest, though, to live Christianly in our world. That is incredibly challenging. That is actually one of the hardest things that a person can do. And the reason why is because turning the other cheek in our culture doesn't seem to make sense in a culture of revenge, Let's say that you're on the job and somebody does something subtle to you that's basically just stabbing you in the back. Maybe it's stealing an account. Maybe it's, if you're in sales, it's jumping in, in line uh, to get a customer before you did. And it's something subtle, but you know it's just a betrayal. Everything in us wants to respond and react with revenge. Everything that our world around us tells us, karma, you know, that's just karma. They get what's coming to them and I'm gonna carry that out, right? Right? Everything in us wants to do that. But the way of Jesus says, turn the other cheek. That is so hard to do in our world. Loving your enemies doesn't really appeal to us. We would much rather cloister with people who are similar to us 
people who agree with us, people who are like us. It is so much easier, we all know this, to make friends with people who, you know, their kids are about the same age or they're in the same kind of socioeconomic, you know, bracket that we are or or whatever that is. It's so much easier than to step out and look at those who are different than us, to reach out to them. But that is the way of Jesus. Our world wants to value people based on what they can do for us the kind of house that they live in, the occupation that they have. But the way of Jesus values all people as children of God. It can also be tempting at times for us to to want to find peace and security in other things. For some of us, it may be how much we work. If I just work really, really hard, if I just work constantly, I will create some sort of peace and security for myself. I will be able to hold on to control. Or maybe it's with a substance. You know, I can't control a lot in this world, but I know when I take this substance that I have a sense of peace, that I have a sense of security, I can be in control of that. The challenge with that is the way of Jesus actually calls us to get out of control, to trust somebody else with our lives. It's so much easier in the world around us to be a money worshiper, to consume and and really just be into a sense of materialism where we just buy and buy and buy because it makes us feel better. It's so much easier to be a fame at all cost seeker. If I could just get people to like me or if I could just be famous. It's so much easier to base our ethics on what gets us ahead. In this way, I wanna suggest that our situation is actually very similar to that of Peter's audience. It would be so tempting for this first church, this early oppressed church to just say, we give up. The way of the empire, it works. They've leveraged their strength. They've leveraged their authority to be able to have this massive empire. Let's just hitch our horse to their wagons. That is so much easier than trying to live differently, trying to live in a way that doesn't fit. But there's just one problem with that. This early church knows something else that Jesus rose from the dead. That creates a wrinkle in the system. That is worth changing course for. That's worth giving our lives to. And not only did he rise from the dead, but the world is now a different place and he gives us a better way of being human in the world. Now there's, more, there's one more important reality about these living stones. Jesus is the cornerstone of this new temple. This Eben is a Ben. And this temple, this new temple, is also made out of different stuff. Somehow, because of Jesus, you are invited to be part of this temple. God is not building a temple made of human hands with rocks, but a temple of people. You are people rocks. That's who we are called to be, not pet rocks, people rocks. You together are this house. This house is being built all around the world. I think about, whenever I think about this house that's being built all throughout the world, I think about some friends of mine that some of you may know, Adam and Laura Willard. They are missionaries to Madagascar. 
And Adam has always had a passion for Madagascar. He knew since he was a teenager that he was supposed to go to Madagascar and to proclaim the good news and live the good news of Jesus in that place. Actually, Adam was so into this that he painted his car with a picture of Madagascar on the top of it. Okay, so he drove this car that had Madagascar on the top of it. Pretty awesome. Somebody uh, married him and went with him (laughs) to Madagascar, which is amazing. Laura has the same passion. And they moved there. And if those of you that don't know Madagascar, Madagascar is an island off the coast of the mainland of Africa. Not only did they go to the island off the coast of the mainland of Africa, they went to an island off the coast of the island, off the coast of the, yeah, of of the mainland of Madagascar. They went to this little remote island, a place that just got electricity recently. For a long time, there was one boat with oars that went back and forth from, uh, from Madagascar to this little island. And you had to be really good friends with the guy that owned the boat. I think it's changed a little bit since then. But they're going out there to people who have never lived in the Christian story before. They've never heard this story. And they're creating communities and they're creating churches out there. It's just amazing. I also think about my friends Greg and Chris Baca, who used to be on staff with us here at Sanctuary, who are in Ecuador And they have just started a church that launched just this last week. And it meets on Tuesday nights. They meet at a place called Club Rock, which I think is awesome given this sermon, right? Um, and, And they meet on Tuesday nights and they're forming this beautiful faith community. It's so important for us to remember that, yes, we are part of this temple that God is building. We are living stones. We are living in as this new temple. And also there are Christians all throughout the world who are part of this temple as well. What's so cool about a living, breathing house is that it can cover the whole earth. That's what the church is called to be. God's desire has always been that his glory would flood the whole earth, and he does that through the church. The last section of our passage here, verse 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter ends this section by reminding the church of who they are. This is your identity. This minority, beat up, exiled church. This church who to the world seems like they have no power and they have no authority or significance. They're living under the shadow of an oppressive and violent empire. Peter uses the same words that were used for the children of Israel in the Old Testament. He says, you are a chosen people. God has picked you out for a unique calling. You are a royal priesthood. In the ancient Near East, if you wanted to know what a particular deity, a pagan deity was like, you went to the priest. The priest's job was to reflect who that deity was to the world. God is saying, we do things differently. I have chosen a whole nation of priests, a people of priests, to show the world what I am like. You are a special possession, God's special possession. The temple has now been rebuilt, not just in Jerusalem, but around the world. Here at Sanctuary, I want to suggest that we are part of this new temple, that we are living stones, that we are called to be a people who don't seem to quite fit with the narratives of the world around us, who live differently, who stand out, who reflect the way of Jesus in that way. 
We're part of a movement of people throughout the world and throughout the ages who have chosen and are choosing to live differently even when it doesn't seem to make sense in the world. And we do this because Jesus has offered a better way to us. This building process happens as we draw near to Christ who is the primary stone that everything else hinges upon. The way that we live is not the way of the empires around us that demand allegiance, but are ultimately oppressive. It's not the way of fame. It's not the way of fortune. It's not the way of notoriety or materialism. Those things make big, big promises, and they leave us feeling empty. The way of Jesus is different from the way of the Caesars of our world. And at the same time, the, at this time, um, the Roman Empire, what they would do is, is they would go into a province, they'd go into a nation of people, and they would conquer that group of people. And they would say, you can practice your religion, you can speak your language, you can do some of your cultural practices, but at the end of the day, you have to proclaim that Caesar is Lord and God. And if they didn't do that, they would be killed. I want to suggest that there's a lot of things in our world that make big, big promises. They tell us you'll have peace, you'll have fulfillment, you'll have security. But at the end of the day, they're empty. But the way of Jesus is different. Peter reminds this church that they're called to a different path, a different story, a different reality. And his words invite us today too. We're invited into this different story. The Christian life is not for the faint of heart. It's not the easy way. We know this. This is something that we lean into during Lent is, is the way of discipleship is challenging. It's hard, but it is the better way. We hold on to this hope as Easter is coming, that we have a hope that Jesus has risen from the dead and we cling close to that, that we have a better way. Maybe you're here uh, this morning and the Christianity that you've been taught about was always about insiders and outsiders was always a narrative of separation. It was always if I behave right or if I can clean up my act or maybe if I come from the right background or tradition, then I'm an insider. But if I don't, then I'm an outsider. I wanna remind you that even though that's a temptation for us to think that way, that that is not the story of Jesus. That God has come close to us to reach and invite all of us no matter what. Maybe you're here today and there's something that's ringing true with you about the Caesars in your world that are hollow and empty. Maybe you've been chasing after something to fulfill a need in your life. Maybe it's a, um, maybe it's a substance. Maybe it's just the, um, you know, pursuing work at all costs. Maybe it's pursuing fame at all costs or performance on some level. And you're recognizing that those things are hollow. Know today that you are invited into something better. Peter says, once you were not a people, now you are the people of God. Let's come together today and be a people. We are a people together. So what does Peter want his hearers to do? How are we built into this temple? Peter says, come to Christ, come to Jesus. That's it. Today, we have the opportunity, as we do every week, to come to the communion table, to come to Christ at the communion table. And when we do this, we bring all of our baggage, all of our junk, all of our stuff. And even with all of that stuff, all of that brokenness, all of that baggage, all that junk from our past or our present, that Christ wraps his arms around us, that he embraces us fully and completely. 
And I believe at the exact same time that he embraces us, that he accepts us fully, that he also begins to put us back together, to heal us and to restore us and to empower us. All are welcome to the table today. There are not insiders and outsiders today. If you are leaning into the story of Jesus, you are invited. Let's pray together. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services at 5 p.m. on Saturday, 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. on Sundays. And if you would like more information on who we are and what we're about here at Sanctuary or to give online, please visit our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com or you can download our mobile app from the App Store or Google Play. We hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week.